Welcome to A Regenerative Future. This is Matt Powers. I'm your host. And this is a podcast and YouTube show about regenerating our world, our culture, and aligning to a future that gets better and better. It's something that, you know, we all deep down desire and know is possible, but somehow along the way, we realize that Our world isn't designed to get better. It's designed to use things up. It's designed to degenerate, to break, to turn into trash, to turn into rubble. And that's not good enough. Not good enough for my kids, not good enough for your kids, not good enough for the future of all humanity. And it's in our hands. We have the ability to change things. And this podcast explores those things that we can do in our daily lives, as well as the larger scale solutions that could change our lives, that are coming down the pipe or are here now. <laughs> All right, so continuing the series, I'm here in my son's studio. Well, it's actually our shared space. There's a workout area there, but I'm going to be setting up an area where I can be filming as well without just guitars in the background because someone might be confused. They're like, is this Matt Powers with his return to rock? It's okay, my son, I'll play bass for him. I'll be his producer. <laughs> and we are continuing these series of interviews on regenerative soil. And today we're talking to Professor James White. Now, Dr. White is a Rutgers University professor. He teaches there. He also does research and writes and publishes papers on rhizophagy cycle, endophytic microbes, the endophyte cycles, and mycology and mycorrhizal fungi. And he was started off as a mycologist, but he's been studying endophytes for over 40 years. Now that is an incredible amount of time, especially for me since I didn't even know endophytes really existed until rather recently. And so I just, have been just blown away that these microbes are in all the plants, that they're the secret to nutrition to so many plants, that they are the secret to immunological defenses for so many plants, and that we've destroyed them by the way we save seeds, by drying our seeds and keeping them in a cool, dry, dark place away from the soil. Now you might be like, but the seeds would just rot in the soil. Maybe so for that type, but I'm here to tell you, and as you'll hear in this interview, we need to change the way we handle soils, change the way we handle seeds, and change the way we interact with our plants because they have the ability to do way more than we realized. And there is another cycle that's very similar to mycorrhizal fungi's ability to get us nutrients, and it's already inherent in roots, the rhizophagy cycle. And we're gonna be talking about that, which is revolutionary. We, we didn't realize that plant roots were basically carnivorous, <laughs> consuming fungi and bacteria, but now we do. And James is gonna tell us all about it. He's gonna let us know, and this is one of my favorite, I think this is, this might be my current favorite interview ever. 
I, I mean, I, I, I could see myself moving closer to live near Dr. James White, to learn more from him and to meet him and spend time with him because he's such a cool guy and he's so nice and amazing. And I mean, you'll see, you'll get it, you'll get it. I mean, you're, you'll be like, I wish this guy was my uncle. You know what I mean? Holidays would be so fascinating. Um, so, so yeah, James is amazing. I, I was just blown away. This is one of my favorite podcasts and YouTube shows. Enjoy it. Watch it over and over again. I already have. That's what I did while I was going over the book. And I hope that this, you know, lights you up, inspires you, gets you, you know, gets your enthusiasm going because this is this is absolutely revolutionary i'm just here to say this is not what people are writing about in books that are in barn the noble and you know, they're not writing about this this is cutting edge he even reveals things that have not been revealed anywhere else in this podcast in this show so stay tuned get pumped and get interested in digging deeper into Regenerative soil. <laughs> to me, this stuff is absolutely thrilling. This stuff is uh, the kind of thing that my brain just kind of gravitates towards. And it's like, it's magnetic because it's so fascinating. It kind of bends the world, my worldview a bit. <laughs> it, it does. It is kind of uh, uh, world bending a little bit, really, especially in terms of, uh, you know, we don't normally think of plants as... Uh, as having that kind of a relationship with microbes. You know, we think of plants as victims of microbes, but, but not really managers of microbes and cultivators of microbes. And, and it, it often plays out as a passive, uh, passivity that we view plants having when they're really not passive. They're not at all. No, not at all. They're, they're really very intelligent, plants are. And, uh, you know, they, they respond to stimuli in the soil, uh, microbial stimuli, and, uh, and they you know, attract microbes and then they internalize those microbes and then extra extract nutrients from those microbes. So it's a, a really, you know, I mean, we don't even understand the, the, the we really only understand the a tip of the iceberg there. We don't understand all the details of what's going on in the soil. Yeah, it's super interesting. When I brought this concept up on social media, it's fascinating to see all the different reactions. But one of my friends who is an ornithologist, who's interested in everything soil and plant related too, uh, he's uh, Stefan Sokobiak. He brought up this book, Survival of Civilization by John D. Haymaker, and, or Hamaker. I don't know how to say his name, but it talks about how they had a theory that um, roots would attract microbes and then drain them on their surfaces of the root, of their, so, you know, their, their protoplasm, and then they would have all these shells or skins from these, these uh, like accumulating over the season. And this was kind of their theory. And, and I was like trying to explain to him, I was like, well, this is, ex this is actually like, you, we're seeing these things now. James, uh, Professor White has gotten so down there and he, he's seen it. And so it's quite different. Whole organisms are going inside, you know. Um, but it seems like we've kind of 
been trying to figure this out for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone really expected that, uh, not, not until that 2010 study uh, of the, the Australians at Queensland University, uh, Tong Fu Lohan, it's, a, it's a, a foreign name, I think it's probably a Thai name, but Tong Fu Lohanihiri, uh, but uh, they actually put a, an article out in, uh, in PLOS, PLOS One, uh, where they labeled yeasts and bacteria, and they fed them to uh, Arabidopsis plants and also the tomato plants, and then they, uh, they, they labeled them with GFP, green fluorescent protein, so they could track them, right? And then they tracked them through the plant, into the plant, and then they showed that they disappeared in time. Two or three days later, they would disappear. So they're the ones who actually named it, right, that they decycle. This is a Suzanne Schmidt, another group was part of that uh, in Queensland University uh, in Australia. It and was that Australia. and was that research done with seedlings uh, as well? Or was that with more mature uh, plants? Uh, well, I think they used both, to be honest. Whoa. I think they used both. I think their tendency was to use both. Yeah, but it's it's actually happening at the growing parts of plants. So it doesn't matter if it's a seedling or if it's a mere mature plant because the root tips are all the same. You know, they're all young parts of the plant. So whatever is happening there, and the rhizophage cycle is actually concentrated right there on the tips. And so older parts of roots don't do it. Only, and in fact, in older roots, those root hairs disappear. So the root hairs are concentrated right in right in there on the tips. And, and, and in fact, we suspect that one of the primary functions of the root hair is to do the rhizophage cycle because they're so active in this process. But a number of people have pointed out that yeah, because plants appear to be doing plants are doing this, uh, they are smarter than we thought, right? They're smarter than we thought. And uh, they're actually a kind of interesting uh, thing is that Charles Darwin uh, wrote a paper, him and his son, I think it was Francis Darwin, his son, about the intelligence in plants. And he actually proposed that the plant intelligence is uh, at the root, at the, at the root tip of the plant. And it's with that area that the plant, and this goes back to what we were talking about, plants responding to stimuli and in various ways. And so one way they respond, I mean, it's interesting, people forgot about that, but uh, it's, an actual, it's an actual paper that they wrote. Uh, in fact, I think it was part of a book uh, on plant, plant intelligence. And uh, the theory is the brain is in the root tip. But, but uh, uh, that's where the microbes are being internalized, right behind that tip. And that's where the plant begins to secrete superoxide onto the microbe, knocks their walls off, the cell walls off the microbe. And then the plant, you know, uh, will cycle those microbes around inside the root cells because this is happening inside the cell. But, but technically, it's inside the cell, underneath the cell wall, but not in the cytoplasm. So it's really outside the cytoplasm. 
but the plant circulates them with the cyclosis. So goes with, or cytoplasmic streaming, we call it going around and around. And, and at the same time hits them with superoxide. And so what happens is they're being leached of nutrients and they're also being broken up. So the ones that survive are being replicated. And so that by the time the root hair forms, uh, they're beginning to accumulate inside those hairs and they're circulated along the hairs on the inside, around and around and around like that. And they really are. I mean, you can visualize them under the microscope. You can see the plant circulating these microbes. And what happens is, if the microbes are present, if they have not been removed, sterilized, then they will accumulate right there at the tip of the root hair in a, in a mass. And at the same time, they're being circulated like this. So every now and then, the, one of them will be caught by the cyclosis and pulled back in, and then it may be replicated again. And so it continues like that. But if they're there, they accumulate at the tip, and then they stimulate the elongation of those root hairs. And so those root hairs will elongate in spurts, a little bit at a time. And as they elongate, some of those microbes are pushed out of those tips of the root hairs. There's actually little pores that develop in the tip. And so they just kind of, when that root hair elongates, it squirts a little bit out. And we know because we can see them come out in spurts, we can actually watch this. And uh, so as that root hair continues to elongate, it squirts out more and more of these microbes. So it's, it's in essence repopulating the microbes out in the soil, the microbes that work with it. And we've measured a number of nutrients that come from when these microbes are present. Uh, and, uh, you know, things like phosphorus and zinc, and uh, in some cases, nit nitrogen, because nitrogen actually comes from the cell walls of the, of the microbes. And, you know, it could potentially, there also could be some nitrogen fixation occurring, but we haven't been able to prove that yet. And the, uh, the identities of, of these microbes are, I know that they're, they're classified as endophytic because they're going in and they're, and they're, but are they like truly endophytic because they're kind of being they're, uh, drained? They are, they are, no, they're truly endophytic. Okay, okay. Uh, you know, endophytes, endophyte really just uh, means that the, a microbe goes in and into the tissues of the plant and does not cause disease. Right. It's not a not a pathogen. I mean, basically, that's it. Right. Um, not about persistence. I mean, in this case, right. <laughs> well, they, they they no, it's not about persistence. But some of these do persist in the roots. Uh, many of them will go out the. I mean, you could imagine if they're going in at the they're being internalized at the root tip. You know, some of them are going in the cell, but some of them remain in the intercellular spaces. And some of these microbes we've seen. Will uh, will actually go through the cell wall of the plant into the intercellular spaces of the of the plant, and so they'll be you know lodged in there, as, and they'll actually form little discs inside the inside the root. So they will, and I we haven't written about this, uh, and probably no one else has mentioned this because they're not looking at it, but they can, they can be in those roots 
And for example, bacillus will go in, once it goes in those intercellular spaces, it will, it will, go, it will form endospores and go dormant in there. So they're, they're in, they kind of fill this tissue uh, of the plant, you know, in all parts of that plant. And so uh, those endospores are there later, they could germinate later. If, for example, there's a lateral root that forms, a new root will form, and it, then it can colonize that tissue of the lateral root. So yeah, no, these are, these are actually true endophytes. That's, that's what I study. Wow. Yeah. So for 40 years I've worked on these. Yeah. So it, that's so amazing. So it, did you say intracellular? So are, are they doing what mitochondria originally did ages ago by entering the cell itself? Uh, some of them, uh, a few of them can go into the cell itself. And, and yes, uh, some of them, some of them do. Most of them, though, no, don't go into the cytoplasm. Wow. There are some that appear to make their way into the nucleus even. And I know it's, it's weird. <laughs> it's weird. Uh, but the ones that, and we think that the nuclear kind of invasion phenomenon is a survival mechanism for the bacteria because the, the bacteria, if they remain in the cytoplasm, the cell hits them with uh, enough reactive, a lot of reactive oxygen and, and can degrade them. And so, you know, either they're on the outside of the side of, of, the, of the plasma membrane, just underneath the cell wall, or for certain ones, uh, alpha proteobacteria, the same ones that originated mitochondria, yeah. they can go into the nu into the nucleus, and uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, and, and, and other people have uh, documented that nuclear invasion of certain fungi, like for example, meth methylobacteria, another endophyte that'll do the same thing, go into the nucleus, which is a uh, yeah. But anyways, yeah, there's certain other ones that can do the same the same thing. Wow. So something yeah, that occurred no, to me. Is, it, is there a pattern to this movement within the roots? Is it like tides or is it linked to daytime or is there like a, like a heartbeat almost to um, these patterns in, this, in, the, in the roots? Well, we're trying to figure that out. Um, it's, it's uncertain, you know, is there a, like a, a day-night cycle that happens? We don't know, we suspected that at one time, but we're still, investigating it. It would make sense that there's a day-night pattern. Um, we're, we're actually trying to figure out what is, what is it that causes the elong why because we know when the microbes are present in the root hairs, hairs elongate. And so we're trying to figure out what the signal is. And, and, our, and our, our main hypothesis is that the microbes are secreting uh, nitric oxide and that triggers the root cell, uh, the root hair to elongate. And that, that also triggers the ejection from the, okay, and we can, and, and my graduate student can, has documented that uh, the microbes are in fact secreting or a source of nitric oxide, but we're still trying to sort, sort all of that out and uh, we're using things like nitric oxide inhibitors and uh, uh, reactive oxygen inhibitors, things like that to figure out what, what exactly is going on. It's, it's kind of a, it's really interesting, but uh, it's complex to, you know, we're, we haven't figured it all out yet, Matt. <laughs> we know, we, 
that's not a surprise, right? We know that it occurs because we can see it. We've documented it, we've filmed it, we've removed the microbes, we've identified all the microbes. I mean, the ones that we work with, we've identified them, we've put them into back into plants that didn't, where we removed the microbes, we've uh, put them into different species of plants. We've tried to figure it out, you know, well, what is it? The same microbes in one plant that stimulates that plant could also be inhibitory to other plants. And so we're playing around this, uh, this uh, with a, as a potential herbicide, you know, that whole phenomenon where they inhibit uh, potential weeds. So the idea there would be to get a plant, crop plant, get the microbes that stimulate the crop plant, and that inhibit competitor weeds so you don't need really any herbicides of any type you just have growth promotional microbes that you can use yeah but that's also hard to 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 make it work in nature because there's so many other microbes out there yeah and then they we call it, the ph yeah. just swinging <laughs> yeah yeah we call that endobiome interference so we even put a term for it right that because these other microbes go in, they interfere with the inner, in the, the inner workings of the way the other, they go into the endobiome of the other plants and interfere with their development. Yeah, that was the idea there. So when, when we're observing all these things, are, are, you, are you watching this in real time with an electron microscope or have you like set a scene up where you let it run and then you scan the footage? Are you, are you like swimming uh, through the electron yeah, microscope? Because no, I, I no, imagine you have this. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. What we do is uh, we tend to work on the light microscope level. We've done some work with confocal microscopy, but most of our work is with the light microscope. And what we use is something called reactive oxygen staining. And that is we'll use, uh, for example, stains, uh, stain that will stain uh, either superoxide, which is what the plant is secreting onto the microbe, or hydrogen peroxide, which is uh, a byproduct of, the, of, the, um, of uh, the breakdown of superoxide. And, and, and when we do that, we can actually visualize the microbes because the area around them will stain and so we can see what happens is the the plant is able to detect the microbes and then it secretes this reactive oxygen on them and then when we stain it uh, because it's secreting reactive oxygen on the microbes we can then see the microbes so so this reactive oxygen staining is the main type of staining that we do we also can visualize a lot of these microbes using iron an iron stain and and that is the reason that works is because the microbes themselves contain a lot of iron. And so with these iron stains, they'll actually pick up this iron stain. And uh, so we can, it's a stain called ferric, ferric, ferric cyanide. Uh, and so we're able to see the, see the microbes pretty well. Um, and then what we'll also do is we will make movies uh, of these microbes in the root hairs using a system uh, of growing the plant on agarose. So in Petri dishes, mm -hmm. plastic Petri dishes, and agarose is just, as you know, gelatin substance. Uh, so we, we put the plants to grow in there with the microbes. And then what we can do is reverse the Petri dish 
and then examine the roots through the reverse of the Petri dish so we could see then what's happening. So then we're actually visualizing living roots, living root hairs, uh, growing roots with the microbes in them. And those, of course, are not stained at all. So we can see the microbes spinning around inside the, so we know what's happening. We can also see them being ejected from the tips of the hair. So, and we've actually filmed that process as well. And usually when I give talks about uh, the rhizophage cycle, I will try to, and even though those are highly memory, contain a lot, you know, take a lot of memory space in the presentation, I'll try to show those, and sometimes it crashes the presentation. But I'll it's worth it though, because, you know, uh, when you see it, then, you know, it's, um, people believe it more. It's hard, it's kind of hard to believe when someone, when someone just tells you, oh, plants are internalizing these bacteria into their cells. First, they're attracting bacteria from the soil or yeasts as well. They attract them to the root tip. They then internalize them into the root cell. I mean, that right away makes, you know, loses some people right there. They internalize them into the root cell and then they process them and squirt them back out of the tips of the hairs. You know, I mean, it's kind of unbelievable unless you actually see it yourself. And so when I give presentations, I try to actually go through all the steps and show using bacteria where the shapes are clear, right? Where they, for example, something like uh, some, uh, some bacteria that will have, say, for example, four cells, you know, a tetrahedron, tetra, a tetrad shape, and then show that the tetrad shape as it goes in and you, you go into the, at the root tip, and you see the tetrads. Then what happens is the plant hits it with superoxide and we can stain the superoxide. And you can see because it stains blue with superoxide stain, nitro blue tetrazoleum it's called. And, and then you can see the, the cell walls fall apart from those uh, microbes and they become single celled spherical units from the tetrads break apart. And then, and then you can see them, you know, in the films, you can see them rotating and rotating and being inject, ejected. We have one very nice uh, tomato movie where uh, we show the, the, the microbes being ejected out. And, and what happens is they're ejected out as, as protoplasts. And so the tips of the hairs, of the root hairs, get these little tiny pores in them. And only the protoplasts will fit through those pores. They'll just squirt them out through those little pores. The whole bacterium wouldn't fit. So the protoplasts will fit out. And then once they're outside, they're no longer exposed to superoxide and they reform their cell walls. It's really cool. It's really cool. These plants are doing something we never expected that they're doing. They are internalizing microbes into their root cells. And then they're uh extracting nutrients from them and they're injecting them back out into the soil totally unexpected charles darwin was right plants plants are very smart and the root is a critical spot a critical bit of their you know capabilities is in the root and the root tip appears important we're actually looking at some other you know just kind of you know one of our ideas about um by humic substances, humic acids, for example, you know, people use that to stimulate growth. But we think that actually the plant uses humic acid as a 
signal molecule as a molecule to detect where the microbes are. Because what happens is uh, when microbes break down plant material, humic substances are released. And what happens to the plant is what the plant will do, in, at least in the experiments we've done, is they will then take in more of these microbes. And so you get uh, the plants then will secrete more when it detects humic substances, it will secrete more um, of the exudates. So you see a thicker exudate that which attracts the microbes. Uh, those microbes will then, more of those microbes will then be taken into the root cells, actually. Root hairs will, will then be longer. Uh, so the plants are responding. And right now we're checking to see to what extent do the plants actually respond to humic substances. And uh, one of our hypothesis, one of the things we're trying to check now is, uh, can the plants actually grow towards humic substances if they detect tiny amounts of it, which would be another level of response. You know, not only do they take in more microbes and cult cultivate more microbes, process more microbes, but they actually can then grow towards the source of those humic substances in order to find more of those microbes because the humic substances themselves are not actually nutrients. So anyway, that's the signal uh, molecule hypothesis of humic substances, yeah. You know, going back to the brain is the tip um, concept, I can't help but think of the Spitzenkorper, the tip of the, the hyphal tip of, yeah. of, of mycelium. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it there's, there's this enormous force, this enormous yeah. potential can break through concrete. Yeah. But then yeah. you've got the complexity of microbacteria actually being in partnership and using mycelium to travel. And when it moves, it can change the, the growth tip or the, the spreading tip from this side of the mycelial mat to another part area. And and what, what has been said is almost instantaneously, this happens, yeah. which, which, which again, seems like a decision is being made. It seems like there's an intelligence there because yeah. there's a choice. There, there is. Well, of course, people are going to think we're crazy for saying that, but you know, there is this whole <laughs> argument. <laughs> there is this whole argument, Matt, that, I mean, I'm sure you heard of this. It's been going around for a while, that slime molds, uh, demonstrate a kind of intelligence that, uh, you know, and there's been a lot made out of that. And it, and it is absolutely correct that, uh, that fungi respond to stimuli as effectively as, as any other organism and as effectively as slime molds. And uh, yeah, I mean, there is a kind of intelligence there that they're exhibiting. They're not just, you know, plants, fungi, slime molds, they're not just, you know, innate, you know, things that are just sitting there, they can respond, you know, mm -hmm. so this idea that there is a kind of intelligence in plants and fungi is not, is not crazy, you know, they can respond, they can grow towards something, they can, uh, you know, they're, 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 in fact, I mean, as you, as you know, the whole concept the, uh, let's see if I get it right. The wood wide web, right? Wood wide web. Right. The right. idea that that trees in a forest, plants are connected with fungi, 
communicating through those fungi. I mean, fungi are definitely a part of that, a whole part of that system. And so, yeah, it's part of that intelligence in the forest, right? They're part of that. And uh, plants, you know, I think that plants, we will, in time, you know, I mean, it's, it's discoveries like the rhizophagia cycle and the way that plants respond to this, these other stimuli like humic substances, you know, will change the way we think about plants. And that, the, you know, the days I think of, of treating a plant as a, you know, just a, a chemical receiving entity, you know, are, are gonna, they're drawn to a close. You know, they're drawn to a close and you can see that, you can see it. You know, you can see it with the rise of these uh, microbiome companies, you know, microbiome agriculture companies that are, you know, a lot of companies now are putting microbes on, you know, bacillus and other kinds of things you can get uh, commercially. You know, well, those kind of products are gonna, they're gonna go up and, and some people are gonna figure out, you know, maybe they don't even need those products. You know, they just have to, they grow the plant right, you yeah. know, under biodynamic conditions or, you know, they have the right kind of soil. You know, they treat their seeds right. They have to store their seeds properly. You know, then you're gonna have plants that are, you know, have the right microbes on them, soils that are very healthy. And uh, you don't you don't need it. In fact, you just mess it all up by putting squirting a lot of uh, nutrients on them. Yeah, I mean we still do it. Obviously, people still put fertilizers on. But I think that as time goes on, that's going to be, you know, there's going to be a greater appreciation that you don't need that. Michael Phillips, when I was talking to him about about all this, he was telling me that when he plants trees. He doesn't do any compost or anything because he wants the mycorrhizal fungi to go, oh, oh I got to get to work. And they do. And then later on, you know, you can, yeah. you can add things and, and, you know, amend and stuff. But initially you want them to meet like, it's like with children, right? It's like <laughs> you, you want them right. to like get, get used to, yeah, yeah, yeah. And get used to things without yeah. too, too much stimulus right. um, so they can master it and understand what's there. So. Well, and actually some of those microbes, some of those mycorrhizae are already in like a, if it's a, a soil where trees are growing and have like ectomycorrhizae on them, they're in that soil. And if you put compost there, you're going to create a barrier for those other fungi to make it through to colonize the, and sometimes bacteria do interfere with mycorrhizal uh, colonization. They, they actually, there is an interaction, put it that way, there's an interaction there that yeah. might affect the colonization of the root by the fungi. Yeah. Absolutely. So one of the things at the end of your paper that I thought was, um, was, was really exciting was that um, you suggested that there, there are future implications for rhizophagy, but that it will require further research. And you've hinted at some of it, um, but what other implications does rhizophagy have um, for, for gardeners, for farmers? Um, for, for, for well, I mean, the simple, yeah, good, good question. Uh, simple, simple uh, things might be like how you treat seeds are really important. You want to maintain the native microbes on seeds. You know, we have a, uh, I mean, we have a, this, uh, uh, habit or practice 
to produce seeds, to when those seeds are mature, to take them off the plant and to take them in and store them in a dry place. Well, actually what happens when you do that is uh, the, the microbiome doesn't develop on those seeds. There's a, what, what, what we call is an after ripening time. And that is that it takes time out in nature uh, with water, with moisture, with uh, you know, cool and warm temperature kind of variations, uh, splashing from the soil, uh, colonization from other parts of the plant. Uh, it takes time for the, the microbiome to mature and for all the, the community of microbes that's gonna, that it will colonize, it will be on that seed to get on the seed. And uh, if you store the seed, if you have too much hygiene, those microbes don't develop there. Those, and those microbes are very important for the seedling in terms of its early development. You know, I mean, what happens is you leave the plant, the seedlings vulnerable to disease. And so one of, a, one of the things that we did when we started agriculture is we started saving seeds and trying to you know, store them in places where they were away from moisture and so forth. And that actually reduces the community of microbes on those seeds and makes them more vulnerable to disease. And uh, they also don't develop properly. And you know, when, oh, when you put them in the soil, then they don't have the good microbes with them. Yeah, so I mean, there actually Holy was cow. a study. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. There was a study uh, of a wild, uh, tobacco that some investigators did in Utah, and they took this wild tobacco, this little wild tobacco, an annual tobacco. This was published, uh, I don't know, eight years ago, something like that, maybe a little bit longer than that. Uh, it was published in uh, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. And uh, uh, what they did is they took this wild tobacco from nature and then they started cultivating. They put it in cultivation, and each year, they would collect the seeds, they would take them and store them for the next year, it was an annual tobacco. Then they would plant them again the next year. And you know, this is in Utah, they were doing this, so it's pretty dry. Uh, and what they found is about, after about seven years, they found that the, the, they started having a disease. It was a, a, a wilt disease. And uh, the, the, it started wiping out their plants. And then they went and they started looking at the plants, comparing them to the wild plants. And what they found is that the plants that they had cultivated, they were just seven years cultivation. What they found is that those plants were losing microbes because of the way they were processing and they were losing microbes. And so they started having this disease. And so what they did was they then took these microbes, certain ones off the wild plants, put them back on their their cultivated plants and voila their wilt disease was cured so this is this is what's happened with agriculture and uh in fact you're gonna this is this this is gonna blow your mind actually you know this is what happened with corn and uh with corn you know i mean we you know we like to think there is there are biodynamic ways to grow corn and uh grow it with uh with microbes and but actually, the, even from the very early days, the Indians, the, uh, the Cherokee and the other Indians actually had ways of stored in the microbes. Ground. 
Uh, well, they, they may have done that. They stored it. They probably did store it underground. You know about that, right? Right. Well, they also would do this. They would also go out. They, they called this, the Cherokee called this the corn medicine. Cherokee corn medicine was called. But they would go get wild grasses and things like Phragmites and, uh, and Hystrix, the bottle brush, and uh, Elimus, the Canadian wild rye and stuff like that. And they would get the roots of those plants and they would take those plants and they would put them in the roots in the water. And sometimes they'd heat that up, heat that up. So they get rid of a lot of the bacteria, but they keep bacillus there. And that, and the heating would wake up the bacillus. And then listen to this, Matt, they would then take their corn and they would put it in this water from the, they got from these other roots. And then they would germinate their corn and then they would take their germinated corn and they would go plant that and it, they would have had a better effect with their corn and they would reacquire those microbes. So they were doing, you know, this microbial kind of, of uh, you know, this microbiology, microbial agriculture. And, but to them, it was magic. You know, this oh. was the magic. This was, this was magic. You know, this was Cherokee corn medicine. You can, you can read about that in, uh, there's a book by an old Cherokee medicine man, uh, Oh my God! I don't. I don't have it here. I don't. I don't know. It's called the, the Lonesome it. Dove or something like this. It's lo something Lonesome Dove Lake or something like that. Lake. I don't know. I could. I, wow. I could send it to you afterwards. So I wasn't prepared to tell you that story, but so you got uh, it anyway. Uh, uh, well, I am so excited about this. So grateful because so many of of the people that I know. Are drying their seeds, you know, sometimes out in the sun, the solarizing them. They're they're uh, drying them out. It's oxidizing those microbes. And then I have friends who are talking to me about the fact that part of the reason that we don't have the nutrition that we have used to have in our plants 50 years ago, 60 years ago, was because we've lost the endophytic microbiology, and it's translated from season to season in the seeds. And so he's all focused on getting it back into the plants and everything. But the linkage between seasons of how we treat our seeds is so incredibly important. I'm a seed person. I used to be a representative for Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds. And we've talked about things like using compost tea to spray down on our seeds before we dry them down. And that's okay in my mind now, but not perfect because you could be displacing things. And then if you've got a, you know, a bacterial dominant tea, you could really screw things up. And it's more, more, it's more like the IMOs, the natural farming IMO cultivation that, oh, that Cherokee story is so incredible because that kind of root soak, you know, taking uh, the, the IMOs from other plants is so rigorous now i mean like this is what we're doing in order yeah. to get uh, microidal fungi and, and actually i i hate to say it but uh what the cherokees were doing is actually better than what we are modern people are doing because they were getting a whole community of microbes that are adapted to grasses you know they were going to these wild grasses and the other thing they were doing because they were heating they were getting rid of a lot of these other bacteria and focusing, concentrating on the bacillus, right? Yeah. So they were getting all these bacilli and uh, getting, putting them back into the roots. And so they got a whole community of bacillus that uh, maybe from different grasses 
not just one grass. And uh, uh, whereas we, in our modern methods, you know, of course, I'm a modern as everybody else, uh, takes one or two or three or four microbes, right, and right. use use those. You know, when when really this wild method, the Cherokees, that the Indians, and you know, Cherokees weren't the ones. I mean, they're the ones that we know about. But probably all the corn-growing Indians figured out how to do this. Most probably. You know, we don't know everything about it. You know, and most people don't write anything about this. You know, the superstitious stuff. You know, <laughs> but they were doing, you know, uh, plant microbiology, and uh, yeah, it's really cool. So uh we're w working actually with a corn breeder organic corn breeder named walter goldstein on trying to get some of those microbes back in and uh i was just waiting to see if you were if you responded see if the person you were talking to was walter not somebody else though no i was talking to michael uh, collins one of the first uh farmers for chez panisse and his whole thing was he would go down to the amazon and he was looking at what they were doing there to make terra preta and still the traditions that kind of lent itself to what they used yeah. to do to try to trace that history. What's interesting, the overlap there is they're, they're making chicha, but they're brewing it over low heat in these clay ceramic giant um, like um, uh, pots essentially. Um, and the grandmothers yeah. are going around spitting in the bruise. Wow. 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 Yeah, and so he was telling me all this stuff. Like, there's a lot of layers. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, they must have figured out that that's necessary in some cases. You yeah. know, that may be spitting in it after it starts to cool down. I don't know. I don't know the timing. The reinoculate. Yeah, the timing may be important because they may have killed a lot of the microbes and then, and then, you know, you'd have bacillus surviving, but then if they spit in it, they re-inoculate it with a lot of other bacteria. Yeah. Yeah, they may be and like chewing not, something when they do it as well. I don't know. They could be, yeah, chewing root, chewing a root or something like that. You're absolutely right. They may be getting microbes out of other plants by chewing them. Yeah, no, that's interesting what they what they do. No, I mean, in fact, that might, if they're chewing plant roots and then spitting in them, as they heat it up see what happens with bacillus is heat activates bacillus endospores and uh, so you know the process that i said about root about bacillus actually burrowing through the cell walls and going in between the cells and the roots right so plant can be filled with these bacillus endospores because of that process and so the roots, if they're chewing on roots, there's probably a lot of spores there. And then if they're spitting it into some boiling or some hot water, that then activates those spores and germinates them. So, so they could be uh, essentially pasteurizing whatever it is they're cooking, right? Water plus other nutrients in there. And then putting their endospore mix from their chewed roots in there i mean i don't know what they're doing you'd have we'd have to study well, it to chicha is exactly. corn beer so chicha is corn beer yeah. and what they did was over these yeah. pits, they would cook it and over time what happened is all these pits basically turned into these um fermentation areas because leaky pots broken pots 
They would turn them into compost heaps. And that's kind of the, the theory behind um, where Terra Preta came from. Because we don't actually know. We've got these observations and we're trying okay. to link them behaviorally. Okay, I see. But we yeah. don't really know. Because <laughs> yeah. we haven't seen so there's it. There's a lot of microbes. There's a lot of microbes in that. Those remains, essentially. That's the remains of their fermentation process. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so it's like the corn yeah. mash. So they've got the... They yeah, probably yeah. have, you know, the cerveza yeast, huh. which is endophytic. Yeah. Um, they, they have a bacillus. Um, and if they're, you know, doing anything with milk, I mean, they would lack the bacillus, right? Um, or even you'd have grain, to, you'd right, have can to, do that. You'd have to really get out the, you know, find out what they've got. You get some samples. and That's, and, that's, uh, that's what everyone's been talking about. Yeah. Yeah, there's different kinds of yeasts too. There's a, you know, it may not be all one yeast. It could be a mix of yeast, and it could be bacteria mixed in there too. More than likely, that's what you've got. It's a complex community of microbes that's doing a doing a thing on that in that system. But then, as the as the alcohol level goes up, you know, a lot of those microbes could be knocked out, and except for except for some of the yeasts that could survive. But I think the low heat actually also prevents it from getting too alcoholic. Oh, um, really? I think. Okay. Um, okay. I mean, there, there, it's an open top. I mean, for I've done, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not a drinker, but I know how to make alcohol. And you've got to like yeah. take it through a first fermentation and then you have to cap it yeah. to get it to that higher yeah. level where people get drunk. Okay. Um, but but yeah no it's it's so fascinating and their techniques are so there's such a, a hidden complexity to half of these techniques where it's like like they're spitting yeah but they may be chewing something or you know what i mean or they just drank a tea or something yeah, like yeah. that right yeah. it's amazing yeah. i think that the the seed insight that you gave is so incredibly valuable I know that there are people suggesting that you can spray flowers to um, infect the seeds for the next generation, but wow, that's just so incredible. So, it, so you still would keep seeds in a cool, dry, dark place, and then you would use a root soak system to- I would, I would say that's the reality. That's the yeah. reality of, uh, you know, we're not gonna change how we get seeds right but putting microbes back on those seeds would be something that makes a lot of sense you know we have we've really uh you know we've lost the microbial partners to a lot of our crops because of the way we treat seeds and uh, even to some extent we've gone you know to uh like uh, in a, uh tissue culture approaches where we produce almost totally sterile plants mm. and then and then try to try to take those and of course you know what we've done is we've made our made our plants more dependent on agrochemicals on pesticides you know to keep them whereas we know from our experiments that we could if we have the microbes there we could cultivate uh at least in the laboratory under experimental conditions we can cultivate plants totally without agrochemicals just using microbes. And the microbes, many of the bacteria 
fact, some of the bacteria will go out away from the, and these are rhizophage cycle bacteria. They will go out into the soil and they will colonize pathogenic fungi and they'll uh, cause those fungi to leak nutrients and they become weak. And so they're no longer virulent, they're no longer pathogenic. So these same bacteria uh, can defend the plant uh, from and, and basically all they're doing is they're colonizing the fungus, the fungal mycelium, and they're making it leak nutrients. And we know that because the fungi, the bacteria will grow on the surface of the hyphae. And uh, the, the fungus in the soil won't sporulate in the soil. So basically we think that using microbes alone, we could cultivate plants. You know, I mean, you know, one crazy vision of the future is we could dispense with all the agrochemicals and use our microbes, use our microbes for nutrients, use our microbes for disease control, you know, use our microbes for stress tolerance because certain of these uh, rhizophagy cycle uh, uh, microbes, when they go in, cause the plant to secrete reactive oxygen, right? That causes the plant then to upregulate uh, reactive ox stress, oxidative stress tolerance genes. And so the plant then is automatically uh, tolerant to like heat or, you know, high salt or other kinds of even pathogens, other kinds of, because most stress is oxidative stress. And so because these plants are doing rhizophagy cycle, they're using reactive oxygen to control those microbes. They're more hardy, they're hardier and uh, more oxidatively uh, stress oxidative resistant to then plants that say, for example, you squirt nitrogen on or squirt other, you know, fertilizers on. So I mean, it, it strengthens the plant. Plants become stronger and healthier. And it does affect, uh, we did one experiment uh, using, I had a student uh, using uh, carrots and, uh, it was carrots, and she put microbes on and, uh, with one particular microbe, she found that the chemistry of the carrot was enhanced and carotenes were produced in, you know, like a double what you get in, in plants without these, without this particular microbe. So, you know, what happens is because the, Which with microbe? certain microbes, the, uh, <laughs> It was a bacillus. It was a bacillus microbe. It was a bacillus actually from a ba from a different a species of uh, I forget the the, okay. the host that it was from. I think it was another carrot family plant, though. It was another carrot family plant. I forget which one it was. I have it in a uh, you know a PowerPoint presentation here somewhere. But uh, the point is that the whole chemistry of the plant is all altered. So you know, in terms of taste, you know, these, if you, if you feed plants with microbes, feed plants with microbes versus squirt uh, fertilizer or inorganic fertilizer on the plant, there's going to be a, they're going to be totally different. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to, one is going to have a, a chemical profile that's very different than the other one. And the one that will have most likely that you'll see the richest profile is the one with the microbes. And uh, the, you know, so, so where you're, you know, I know that this big argument uh, has been for years where some people say, oh, 
fertilizer. It doesn't make any difference with the plant or organic. Mm -hmm. It actually is, there's a reason that it does. It is logical that it does make a difference. And uh, it's because the plant is responding different. And we know that the plants are oxidatively very different uh, when they have the microbes versus when they don't. We also know they're, they're weaker uh, if you just feed them with uh, more susceptible to disease if you just feed them with uh, fertilizer versus, and the reason is because it's oxidative stress, you know, versus give them microbes. You know, they, they're hardier plants with microbes. With corn, I've been trying to replicate the indigenous model of genetic re revival or regeneration because out of Mexico and Peru, the genetic variation of corn has essentially flowed up north towards us. And routinely, I mean, it would come up in waves from these seed, these seed savers and, and exchangers. And so I took Peruvian corn from the Highland Valleys, Piscaranto and Cuyuchuspi, and I was, I didn't under, I didn't know at the time that no one had been able to do it. Um, but apparently no one had been able to grow it to get full corn ears and be able to save seed. And I just understood the timing of uh, 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 requirements. And so I put it on the dark side of a hill and it only got four hours of direct sunlight. And it was hot, long, long, long season in California. And so it... Most people, when they find out that it took May to um, December to grow, <laughs> be like, what? But the next year, it jumped an entire month earlier. So it adapted really fast. It was adapting. adapting. Right. And so I, for me, I, got, I was like, this is what literally happened with the Native Americans who brought new seeds in. They would see this gugung, gugung, gugung adaptation. And this is why we, corn is corn. And... I brought it in because in my mind, the white and the yellow corn that we're all eating, um, and even, and, and, and this is, this is, this, I'm not trying to, you know, talk negatively about anyone, but um, it's lacking in nutrients. And so to a certain degree um, is the genetic variance lacking in a lot of the North American indigenous corns because only one family was growing it, only one person or a group of families was growing it, holding on to those genetics, which are very precious and very important. But when we do that genetically with a bottleneck and we're not doing what they do in Peru, which is open pollinating everything and having just wide genetic differences between things, and, and, and they literally maintain a lot of their genetic integrity despite being open pollinated. So you have these incredibly vigorous um, and genetically, uh, I would say, um, not in a negative way, but dominant, because you'll interact with other corns genetically and it will take over their genome of expression. And so I started growing hardy um, land races of northern corn varieties alongside Peruvian land races to get them to cross. And my whole thought was, even if I don't get the Peruvians, 
those genes are going to go onto my shorter season um, crops um, if I can time it right. And so what I did was I got the shortest season corn and did it two, two to three times in a California season while this one long season corn was going next to it. And I was able to get this transference. Um, but I don't know if we can do that with everything. Because um, I know I'm, I'm, I'm getting those, what? Yeah, did it actually cross? Oh yeah, no, it I've gotten cross. it to cross. Um, and, and you can see the variance in between. You can see the, the variation in between the two types. Because I selected yeah. a purple yeah. speckled variety um, and the purple okay. speckles are just, you know, oh. amazing. And so, and so I Not got the genetic yeah. um, uh, propensity to release the, end, and the nitrogen fixing um, gels, the, the mucilage, the, the mucus, you know, coming off those aerial roots that everyone's raving about now that it has, you know, nitrogen fixing microbes in it. But I have that and I feel like it's, I mean, and I, of course, you know, we just discovered it's in sweet potato leaves, it, you know, it's in sugar, uh, sugar cane, nitrogen fixing uh, microbes. I suspect it's in almost everything. And it's because of what's happened the way we've been saving seeds, like you talked about, and other factors that we've lost these microbes. And I'm wondering what you would suggest or what you've seen would be the best way to bring it back. Um, is it cousins from wild plants, um, other countries, um, more genetically diverse land races? What do you think? <laughs> I, I, I actually, I actually like, I, I mean, yes. I mean, I would normally say, uh, and then I want to say something about your corn and those aerial roots in a minute, but, uh, I would say, yeah, it's, uh, wild relatives would be the way to go to go back and get the original microbes from those wild relatives. But I, I kind of like what the, what the indigenous Americans were doing to, get you know growth promotional microbe, microbes back for their on their corn you know i mean I think that was a neat strategy and that you can get uh, that was a really cool thing that you know we've yet in modern times tried to replicate what those native americans did simply because we didn't know what they were doing uh, but uh, i mean that'd be something really worth well worth trying i'm gonna do um, it yeah, you should, I figured you might. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yes, that's a cool. That's a, I want to know when you do it, and and I can I can I can help advise you on it, so we can do it different ways, a couple of different ways, you know, with this different kinds of amounts of heating and stuff like that. You know, I mean, you could turn an invasive plant like Phragmites australis into a cash crop as a source of of microbes. I mean, wow. imagine, imagine, no longer will be we trying to kill the Phragmites. We try to cultivate it and get those microbes on the roots. Yeah. So beautiful. Uh, but anyways, like you said, the wild relatives, which is what you've kind of figured, and we've always said that too. Um, that makes sense. And that's what we found. We could do that. Uh, with the corn, I want to go back to the corn. The, the, uh, it is interesting. You know, we've tooled around with corn a little bit too, as I said. Um, the aerial roots, you know, it's funny that a plant has that. Um, the, there's one hypothesis about corn is that it evolved actually in the, uh, in the floodplains of riverbanks 
and that those that those aerial roots at the nodes that keep going they were they're there because the the silting happens and they keep getting silted up and so every time it's a new start right on those aerial roots yeah and so those roots that have the the gelatin on them that's exudate from the root tip and so they they're cultivating microbes for when the soil covers them over and then they have those microbes there ready to grow and to start internalizing them and some of those are nitrogen fixtures and they may be fixing there on the tip but they also may fix internal once they're inside those roots you know that that is yet to be proven yet to be demonstrated but you know the way corn works is those are not likely aerial roots that are intended by mother nature to be aerial right. those are likely intended to give the the corn plant you know that grows over you know you said it was like six months or seven months or eight months what was it may well, may june to july December. yeah it's it's many months it's uh it's many seven months. months yeah it's six and a half as, as these as these plants were sitting on that riverbed you know they're being silted and silted and silted and silted you know yeah. by the spring rains or whatever right the summer rains spring rains and summer rains and so i mean that's probably i mean we're just you know, I mean, I'm not an expert on corn, but we have looked at it, we have studied it, and, and uh, I know there is this idea that corn evolved as a, as a river a riverbank uh, species, and that they could have been selected by the natives, you know, from those areas. And likely the natives grew them on those areas, because those are nice areas for you know where there's lots of open land you'd have to clear a lot you could just grow your corn there and anyways that's my that's my two cents you could take that or leave it that's my <laughs> two cents regarding regarding uh the evolution of corn the development of corn it is a fascinating thing it is absolutely fascinating it, i know people are sampling those that that gel now and using that in their inoculants for other plants to try to transfer it yeah 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 so some plants will have that and they're getting it in the uh like the the these land races from mexico probably because these plants have not been tinkered with the way our plants have you know by uh you know hybrids and clean they're not as clean right it's not as clean of a system. They're growing in a lot of these are tropical, you know, so they're growing in tropical environments with lots of moisture around. It's hard to get really dry seeds in those areas. Probably once we get them back here, though, we start, you know, storing them in cool, dry spaces so no microbes can grow and we'll lose them. You know, this is just how we do stuff. So we have, you know, we're, we're going to have to find another way to get those microbes back. That's so fascinating, you know, and it just occurs to me again that teosinte was used on the borders of cornfields and milpa farming um, systems, and they, they they wanted that blessing of the of the of the mother of corn, which is you know teosinte is a grass that um, led to corn, and it, I think that there's that again that uh, that wild microbiology being right yeah. there. Yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to study about all of this. You know, I mean, what we can tell is that 
plants lose their microbes once humans start messing with them and store them, take, take the seeds the way that, you know, so they lose them. We know that. Experiments, we could show that. Many experiments have shown that. Likely we wouldn't have diseases mm. if, uh, as many diseases, if we had the full complement of natural microbes. You know, we wouldn't, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't have to worry about as many diseases simply because a lot of the pathogens, or at least some of the pathogens, I can't say all of them, but many of the pathogens, once those microbes colonize them, they're no longer virulent. So they don't, they don't cause disease. And, uh, you know, so, you know, those microbes play some really important roles in, in wild plants and in, you know, I would think in biodynamic farming, you know, they, they play important roles. Did you catch that article about the fusarium um, going into a tomato plant and then being retasked by an endophyte to, to play nice and be, <laughs> to, to be a benefit instead of uh, uh, well, that's what we've been saying. Uh, that's what we've been saying for a long time. I think I saw that. Uh, yeah, we see the same thing. Yeah. We see that. That's exactly what we see. Uh, what we see is that... Uh, that many, and in fact, I started to say this, but I didn't complete that thought. Uh, that uh, many of some of these pathogens, like Fusarium, if they're colonized, they're endophytic and they don't cause disease. Yeah, they're non-pathogenic. They're they Incredible. they act as an endophyte. We can see them in the tissue, on the tissue. And they're not diseased. They're not causing disease. We can also, for certain plants like a basil, for example, that that uh, seeds have this. Um, gelatin matrix on the outside of them that carries microbes, and uh, so long as those microbes are there, uh, the plant, the seedlings are resistant to fusarium. And if we remove those microbes with Clorox, surface disinfect them, and you got to really surface disinfect to get rid of all those microbes. Uh, then the plants are, are sitting ducks for fusarium. The fusarium causes disease, kills the plants, wow. kills the seedlings. So the microbes are absolutely critical to the health of the seedlings. Wow. So I guess you probably don't buy your seeds from, you know, some of these distributors like Johnny's who's like doing seed sterilization. And... I would not recommend that unless you're going to have it. I mean, you know, I mean, we got to get our seeds somewhere, right? Right. right I, I tell you what, I would not do. I definitely would not get seeds because it's hard to get seeds with all the microbes on them. Mm. But I would not get seeds that have a coating of fungicide or fertilizer on them. Mm. Any coated seeds, I would avoid. Any coated seeds because you're you're you that it's a double whammy. You know, you damage. You're damaging the microbes on the seeds, and you're damaging the microbes in the soil, and it's just not—you don't need to do that. It's a—it's a bad idea. So my 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 recipe for coating the seeds with nitrogen-fixing inoculant—is <laughs> that problematic? That would, no, that's not problematic. But you know, it may not—it may not be uh, compatible with your plant. You know, I mean, if mm. just—I mean it. If it's something that that you know gives a growth promotional response, then you know it's compatible. 
right. but if it's if it doesn't you know you may it may be not working because it may just not be colonized in the plant it may not be compatible you know right. i mean yeah you could you can you know i mean this is what we do we experiment right so you i mean you have to experiment a lot you know to see what what is going to actually work and we have these great hypotheses but to to get something to work you have to try it multiple ways and kind of do little experiments and so forth yeah do your own little investigation of it and see what works and when it works okay you got it so you have it, to do the same thing that's what we're doing in the lab yeah so so yeah. speaking of basil and that um gelatinous coating could we kind of create i mean i use alginate all the time um I'm, I have sodium alginate in the kitchen. I, I blend it and add it to water. Um, yeah. But if, if I had an, uh, like an alginate uh, percentage water um, and then sprayed it on them and let that dry on them, would that give it a kind of almost agar-like coating that would allow protection and kind of a housing for it? Or would that set things in a different direction? <laughs> Well, it really depends on the seed. Uh, the seeds, you know, seeds are evolved to work a certain way. I mean, for example, grass seeds, right? You consider grass like a fescue grass, for example, or wheat, it's the same deal. Uh, you have, on the surface of the seed, you have other layers. And the microbes typically, now I'm thinking of fescue grass, some what we call uh, limas and paleas, but they're, they're dry tissues, leafy tissues that hang on the outer surface. Those tissues are where the microbes are located in that tissue. If you were to take that and put alginate on it, uh, you know, you create a, an environment that really is not optimal for that grass seed. It's gonna be a lot of moisture. You're gonna have, you know, the microbes that, that need to be there, need to have, need to have the moisture, need to have oxygen, for example, are not going to have it because you've got it coated in this big liquid thing. If you took the seed and dunked it under water, I mean, you'd have the same issue. You know, the oxygen's not, levels aren't going to be there for the microbes or for the seedling. Uh, for basil, I mean, that's different because those seeds are evolved to have this little gelatinous coating on it. It's a thin coating, you know, but well, no, it's actually kind of thick. I mean, you've seen them before. They're kind of thick. Uh, it's it's evolved. It's it's adapted to having that kind of a situation. And uh, you know, so I mean, you could try it with the with the other grasses, with wheat or whatever. But I don't think it would be an ideal situation. Although, if you were to then spray your microbes on the surface of your of your grass seeds that are dry, I think that would work fine. You know, spray them on, maybe spray it on with something that sticks, right? And mm -hmm. then, uh, and then you know, let it dry on there. You know, an endos endospore mix, for example. Yeah. A lot of these dry seeds have a lot of bacillus on them. And they're kind of adapted for carrying bacillus, like grasses. Uh, basil, that might be a bacillus too, I think, that comes out of that. But anyways, it does matter. You know, this alginate, yeah. yeah, people use that, by the way. They do use alginate as a carrier for microbes. So uh, you've had the same idea that other people have had and, uh, and tried it, and it did work. It does work. Excellent. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, <laughs> so, man, so much of this stuff has been thought about by some incredible people, but it's, we're still figuring it out because in order to figure it out, we have to be kind of like meticulous, right? Like we have to control so many variables um, to actually prove that one part. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's a good part of it. I think, I think we have our, you know, for a long time, we have our concepts for 100, over 100 years, you know, our concept of how, uh, how plants get nutrients, for example, and they don't have, you know, the old ideas, you know, except for mycorrhizae, you know, and that's even not super, uh, you know, I mean, that's not, I mean, that's not super old. Yeah. Uh, our ideas are that it's chemical, it's all chemical, and that, and that, you know, we have a lot of, you know, there's a lot of inertia there, mm. that everybody knows that chemistry works, you know, that you can squirt these chemicals and they need this for nitrogen to make protein, so you stick nitrogen there. But it's much more complicated to use ecology. And, uh, and then you don't have everybody, it's easier to use chemicals, you know? You just pay a little money and you get the fertilizer and squirt it on. Uh, but microbes are much more complicated and uh, you've got an ecology involved, you've got things that are recent, like the rhizophagy cycle is relatively recent, just a few couple of years now. Uh, you know, and uh, not everybody knows about it and, and uh, probably, you know, some people just, uh, you know, wonder if it's really true, you know. So there's that whole thing, you know, that it's new science. Uh, not everyone has seen it. Not everyone knows about it. There's only a few people working on it. Uh, the uh, and some of the you know a lot of the science now we have is focused on genomic uh, genomics and it's it's less on ecology. And so you know ecology is almost uh, soil ecology is almost uh, you know it's much less than and certainly less less well supported than then you would see, you know, some other areas, uh, molecular biology type work or genomics work. And so people think along these other lines, right? And they don't think along uh, uh, ecological lines as much. That's what I think anyway. Yeah, but it, it, to me, that's, it seems so crazy because it's like, how do you understand the way those, uh, I mean, when I think about things, I think of our muscular mycorrhizal fungi and the fact that it's like this 70s ever modulating like analog synth where it's like every time you hit that note, it's a different, it's a different sound because it's reacting to everything around it and trying to cue what, you know, what the next level of secession is from its perspective. And so when I hear that, you know, they're genetically going through things like I have this uh, friend named Craig and he, it's all about this. And he, he's just constantly genetically testing everything. And I'm like, isn't it kind of like a soup? I mean, if there's that much variation, wouldn't, it, wouldn't ecology be the only way to make sense of it? That's what I think. I, I, I think that uh, our work in, say, metagenomics is is showing us that it is there is a a complex community of microbes out there and that 
um, that we need we need to you know somehow dissect that in some meaningful way experimentally to actually sort out what is and so I mean I think that that the experimentation is really the way that that we have to get to the bottom of it and that uh, you know metagenomics is good but it, it is uh, it's it's not going to answer all of our questions you know that's the bottom that's the bottom line but you have so much of you know everything is kind of focused on this other route so the the real laborious uh time consuming work is going to be all this experimentation that has to be done and and hypothesizing that people have to do i mean in order to do an experiment you have to first really come up with a, a meaningful hypothesis and then test that right experimentally and uh you know not all the hypotheses have been developed and uh yeah so i mean yeah i think i think that that will be sorted out but it's going to take us much longer to sort out sort out those questions and it, it, you know matt I, I don't know if you realize this but i actually am a mycologist by training this semester i have two mycology courses going simultaneously this fall semester and these are these are pandemic courses these are online but but i have the students um doing a lot of independent work in the in the woods these days uh in order to make observations on fungi and to identify a lot of these fungi they have all these exercises some of these exercises have to do with actually mycorrhizae so we've got a like for example uh you know digging up uh uh one exercise is digging up plants in the woods seedlings of oaks in the woods and identifying the mycorrhizal the ectomycorrhizae on those roots so we're exploring these course these students in these courses are exploring this whole area and in fact the rhizophagy cycle involves bacteria but it also involves yeasts right. and uh, it may in fact involves it may also involve some other non-yeast fungi i mean one fungus that does this is uh is one called areobacidium which is a called a black yeast but it has a mycelial stage so we may have some fungi being internalized into plant roots that are filamentous and that uh, because what happens is they lose their cell walls and they go in. You can actually see these, these fungi look very different inside the root cells than the, than the bacteria do. They tend to be larger and uh, sometimes more variable, sometimes uh, almost like cloud shape, cloud shapes in some cases. And they'll oftentimes fill the whole outside of a of a of a of a root cell when they go in you see for example the the pigweed uh, amaranthus plant yeah will have they will have these fungi that go into the into the roots and so a lot of the roots will have areobacidium inside those root cells these black yeasts that's so fascinating because yeah. so many people uh categorize amaranth as a not mycorrhizal that's yeah well the these fungi go inside those root cells so yeah they're, they're not like in my book they're in they're inside that they're actually inside the cells inside right. the cell yeah wow. rather than on the surface of the root they're internalized and so the the you know in this case it is the plant 
you know, in the rhizophage cycle, it's the plant that is internalizing these microbes and not the microbes that are colonizing the, the plant, you know. So there, the plant is actively taking these microbes in. And so presumably, uh, the these uh, areobacidia and these black yeasts are being taken in uh, to those cells at the root tip. And uh, yeah, so we, we know that because we could take that same black yeast and we can put it in some other plants and get them to go inside those other plants and those seedlings of those other species as well. So we know that we, that they're in the, that they're in the, that we can uh, get them to in, uh, internal into the cells of other species. It's just that they tend to inhibit those other species tends to be inhibitory to the growth of those other species. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, I'm friends with William Padilla Brown, Trad Cotter, uh, Paul Stamets. Uh, we're, we're talking about having him uh, speak at my conference this winter. Mycology mm -hmm. is a big, uh, I'm also friends, good friends with uh, Peter McCoy, Radical Mycology. He's a, he's a good friend of mine. So mm -hmm. I am, I am absolutely enamored with mycology. Yeah. So, and I feel like you kind of have to have, you know, you're, these, all these different groups and terms that we've created separation around, it feels like now we're going and showing how they are deeply interconnected and have all this crossover genetically or interplay. And if you're not kind of looking laterally, it feels like it feels very hard to grasp what's actually going on because you're like oh but then there's this and oh but then there's that and so man it's so awesome that that you're a mycologist too because i feel i yeah. feel very 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 sure that we have to be lateral like that and it's excellent so so the reason the the reason that that in my lab, we might pick up something like the rhizophage cycle is because for 40 years, we've been studying endophytic microbes. And at first, we only studied the fungi hmm. that were endophytes. And that studying involved actual microscopic examination of those fungi. So at first we were looking, I mean, my whole, my dissertation when I was an undergraduate, in fact, it was on the tall fescue fungal endophytes in tall fescue. And then when I did my PhD, it was the fungal endophytes in wild grasses. You know, and so I studied the whole wow. life cycle. They were all fungal endophytes, right, in grasses. And then, and then I expanded at Rutgers, came here 25 years ago, and uh, probably about 10 years ago, I expanded to start looking at the bacteria that go in. But in order to see those bacteria we had to evolve or develop invent essentially a new stain a new way to look at them so we invented this reactive oxygen stain and so that became the special lens the lenses through which we could then see these microbes in the plant otherwise they're they're invisible you know you have to be able to see them you have to be able to see them and so we started to see them then and so then we started to see them we started to study them we started to see how they pass through the plants, how, where they enter in the plant. And so we worked that cycle out. And so then we looked at seedling after seedling after seedling after seedling, looking for these 
these microbes that are being internalized into root cells. And so, but it took that special, you know, endophyte perspective coming first from fungal endophytes, right? And going through, you know, to bacterial endophytes and studying this whole kind of thing. So nobody else is doing that, right? No, and so why is it no one else sees it? Because there are no other endophyte people who are doing that. And uh, most of the other people studying soil microbes are not doing that. Yeah. So they're, not see they're not seeing any of that. They don't know. They don't know how. They don't know how. They've never heard about it. I've got it's my a, microscope right here with me, and I literally, it. I, I, it's it's yeah. so frustrating. I feel like I need like yeah. right. special glasses right. because there's yeah. no stain. Everything's invisible, and I gotta like look. Yeah, everything really is carefully. invisible. So I don't see anything. You see, so that's the whole world. You see, that's the world. Wow. You know, until somebody first sees it, it's invisible. And that's how it is with anything. You know, I mean, I tell my students, you know, my students are going looking for fungi now. You know, they, they don't know. They, they can't find a fungus, you know. But then when they see it the first time, then they see it everywhere. You know, they've never seen a maitake before, right? Never seen right. a maitake, a gruzilla, a frondosa. Never seen that before. What are you talking about? It's a big fungus. Go in the woods, they never find it. Then find it the first time. Then they can find it faster than I can after that. Then they can see it at 100 feet through the woods. You know, then they, but it's the same thing with science. You know, you, you don't see it until you see it the first time for yourself. You know, and then you see it. You know, and so that's the way the world is with, you know, any phenomenon that we see with the rhizophagy cycle. You know, I mean, people are seeing it and believing it. But it's, you know, it's, it'll take time for everybody to see it and believe it. You know, so what I do when I go around talking is I try to show everybody what I'm seeing, you know, so that seeing is believing, right? And, uh, you know, hopefully some of those, you know, the regenerative agri agriculture people and organic agriculture people and, uh, and even the companies, you know, that, that deal with growth promotional microbes, they many of those you know see it and they do believe it you know but uh you know it's coming it's slow starting with that population going out you know and uh you know hopefully in time you know everyone will understand what's going on in plants and that's that's my goal is uh, to try to you know to try to you know spread the word about what plants are doing with microbes well, it's and, so and, critically and important. Yeah, well, it's so critically important. And uh, thank you. You know, if it, hey, you're welcome, man. My pleasure. <laughs> and uh, I'll, I'll say it for everybody, yeah. you know, who's watching. Thank you. Because um, we are in a whole society where we can't see it. You know, it's, it's a, we're in a, a state where a lot of things we can't see. <laughs> and, right. uh, and it's this process of, 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 elucidation of um, seeing things for what they really are or seeing things for what they really aren't and having the humility to explore things um, with that unknowing. Man. Well, I am so excited because I know so many folks um, who I work with who are looking through microscopes who are going to probably be messaging you. 
<laughs> but I want to be taking your classes. Yeah. 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 Um, and these classes are online now. But yeah. the problem is Rutgers tuition is pretty expensive. I would like to say one one comment now about about plants. Sure. I mean, what all this stuff is telling us is that Charles Darwin was and his son were probably right. And that is that plants are a lot smarter and intelligent than we gave them credit for. And, uh, and this rhizophagy cycle, internalizing microbes and attracting them and getting nutrients from them and then repopulating them out into the soil, essentially cultivating microbes or farming microbes is part of that intelligence. You know, their plants are, you know, they have their own kind of intelligence. And we, we're just learning about that, you know. And so to us, you know, that old concept of plants are just these innate, innate things that grow in one place and can't get away and don't think and don't, don't respond is wrong, you know. It's, a, it's arrogant of us to think that. They actually, actually, it's ignorant on our part to think that. Charles Darwin and his son were probably right. They're, they're intelligent organisms. I'm 100% there. And I feel like that fungi are right there alongside them as being incredibly intelligent and having the ability to teach us a lot about the way the world works, the way, our, um, the way that we can work, especially with fungi, the way it, the mycelial relationships are mitigation and facilitation. And it's amazing. It is amazing. It really is. And, and uh, here's the added wrinkle for you. Uh, fungi actually are also internally colonized by bacteria. Right. And uh, uh, tends to be more with um, ascomycetes and with zygomycetes. And you've heard about the bacterial endophytes or uh, internal colonists of like zygomycetes, the VA mycorrhizae, the get a bacteria that go inside them. And then you get, you get ascomycetes that actually get a lot of bacteria also that internally colonize them. And we can also see those through the microscope. With basidiomycetes, you do get some colonization, but they actually have uh, fewer, we think, uh, internal colonizers because they have evolved the uh, plugs in their septa. And we think these septa actually prevent this internal movement of bacteria. So when you look at the zygomycetes, you've got no septa there. The bacteria can get in and slide all around, all over the hyphae. So they get colonized a lot internally. Ascomycetes, you have the septa that goes in like this, but have a hole in the middle, right? So the bacteria, once they get in, they can actually go less easy because of that septum that goes down there, but they can still get through that plug. But then you have the uh, basidio, uh, I mean, that was ascomycetes with the hole there. Then you have the basidiomycetes with the plug in there, the septum that gets a plug in it, and you can't get anything through that plug, the septal plug. And so the bacteria cannot then move, so they don't readily move. So they are less prone to these, uh, and I'm gonna put endophytes, or endoparasites than the zygomycetes and the ascomycetes. So, so you still have this internal 
education phenomenon occurring with those other with fungi. So is that is that micro or proteobacteria? Because um, it would have to be really small. Both kinds. Both kinds. Both kinds. Yeah. Both kinds. Wow. Yeah. It, yeah. Both kinds. You can see them. We can see them coming out. We can see them. Well, we see them coming out. We've actually seen them going in too. At their tips, at their hyphal tips, almost like at the root tips, the hyphal tips. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So this internal colonization is not limited to plants. It also happens with fungi. And that's, that's the only point I wanted to make uh, here is that you have these bacteria. Now, are the fungi managed in the same way that the plants are? I don't know about that. This is, I mean, they could be more parasitic than the fungus. I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, it may be that's the whole reason that SEPTA evolved and got so sophisticated to prevent them from moving in the in the in the mycelium. You know, I mean, don't forget uh, this whole process was occurring in the evolution of eukaryotes, uh, in the evolution of the mitochondria, right? I mean, this is how the mitochondria got there: is you got this internal colonization, and at some point. Uh, the the microbe uh, was no longer degraded internally, and so you get you, then you have the what remains is a, a mitochondrion and or the structure that evolved into the mitochondrion. You know, so this was this was a process that's very ancient in terms of uh, eukaryotes. Evolutionarily speaking, was Ascomycetes before Basidiomycetes? We don't. We don't know for sure. I don't know for sure. I think so. I think so, but we don't know for sure. I don't know for sure. Well, because Basidio is all, all the mushroom forming, and then Asco is the one that's um, uh, more um, diffu yeah. like, like diffuse, right? And that's the one that's in water as well as in the soil. Smaller. Well, so here, here is the logical thing that you can take. You could... Okay, so if you just look at the septa, okay, so you have the chytrids, which are the most ancient in that line of, of true fungi, right? Chytridiomycetes. That's mm -hmm. the aquatic ones. Okay, and then you have, then you have the zygomycetes and the glomeromycota, glomeromycota, right? The the VA mycorrhizae and those those fungi. Mm -hmm. And some of the names are changing there, but those don't have septa, cannot have septa, right? So those are the ones where the bacteria could get in and slide around. So getting all these endoparasites, we'll call them, limits the whole fruiting body that you could form and the, the how long the, the mycelium can live, right? right? So that's a limitation because you could get loaded with parasites. Okay, so if you, if you then develop a septum where you could limit that, I mean, because they go in and they get underneath the cell wall and slide around in there, you know, outside the membrane. If you then create a invagination that goes in a septum, an ascomycete septum, that invagination goes in, then there's a block. And so they enter a cell and then they can't go very far unless they can go through that pore, go around and go through the pore. So it slows them down, right? Okay, so what the basidiomycetes did, that's a development beyond that kind of an open septum structure, is they developed a pore a proteinaceous type uh, uh, molecular kind of a structure that would go into that plug, into that hole, that pore, and plug it up 
And that prevents anything like these bacteria from sliding between those cells. And so we think that that was the, the reason for that pore, that plug, was to prevent finally from any of those bacteria getting into the mycelium and spreading around. And that would enable then these fungi to be very long-lived, right? And to have these big fruiting bodies that they develop and mycelium that will grow for years and years and years under the soil. And so you get these huge humongous mushrooms that, uh, you know, that are the same type, they're big as a whale or something, you know, because the mycelium is really old and they could limit these. That's, a, that's our hypothesis anyway, that that limits this internal colonization of this mycelium by these bacteria. And so, I mean, it's not, you know, it's, it's basically an extension of the same process that gave rise to mitochondria in the early eukaryotic cells. It's just that that process continued and, uh, and they, you know, they, limit, they limited them rather than turning them into an organelle, right? So, very, yeah, that's, very that's fascinating. Yeah. Wow. A lot, of, a lot of theoretical stuff there, but you know, I mean, it's a, it's we've been studying this thing for years, you know, and so you know, we would develop some of these ideas. You know, proving those ideas takes more time than developing the ideas, but that's that's the hypothesis, right? Those are the hypotheses that we develop, and it all hinges on this idea of endophytism and internal colonization of of uh, these other organisms, right? So, yeah, so, so all of this comes out of that, you know, that mindset, so to speak. It is really, really incredible. I appreciate you so much for coming on here and sharing so much knowledge and correcting me in places and helping me explore new areas. This is, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back and, and massage things a little bit especially about the amaranth being uh being endophytically mycorrhizal um does that mean that like beets and brassicas and all the quote non-mycorrhizal fungi uh non-mycorrhizal plants are are they are are, are they all like endophytically um fun, fungal yes 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 mm -hmm. yes they have fun fungal endophytes and they have bacterial endophytes and uh, some, I mean, what you should think about is the rhizophagy cycle does some of the same things that mycorrhizae do, but they, they do it at the root tips, right? So with the root tips, you have these microbes internally colonizing, going around, cycling. But with older parts of the plant, you have these other fungi connecting. And the mycorrhizae will connect, the VA mycorrhizae will connect, or... Uh, ectomycorrhizae will connect and and uh, you know when the root is covered by ectomycorrhizae you no longer have rhizophagy cycle happening rhizophagy cycle is really a phenomenon of root tips and all seedlings do it but if you look at a tree a big tree that's fully developed it's got mycorrhizal roots so those mycorrhizae actually go out into the soil and they do a lot of that absorption so they'll absorb you know phosphorus and and zinc and some nitrogen and bring it back to the plant but in in lieu of that in the in in things like grasses and things with lots of root tips and lots of fibrous roots they're doing rhizophagy cycle like mad 
they'll do VA mycorrhizae, VA mycorrhizae, but I think probably, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, this is yet, a question is yet to be answered, you know, what provides more nutrients? Is it rhizophage cycle or is it, is it mycorrhizae? And does it depend on the plants? It depends on the plants. It very much depends on the plants. And so, you know, these are all systems that plants use to get nutrients. And so that's the, that's the bottom line. And rhizophagy cycle is one of those systems. Uh, mycorrhizae are other systems. Uh, nitrogen fixing rhizobia is an entirely another system for acquisition of nutrients. And uh, yeah, so anyways, there, there you have it. And endophytes, you know, part of them, some of them are involved in this nutrient acquisition. Others are involved in defense from disease agents uh, in stress tolerance, in enhancing stress tolerance. You know, we know from a lot of work done on the fungal endophytes of grasses that stress tolerance is a big, big effect. But we also know that certain endophytes in aerial parts of plant will, will also trigger the symbiosis in the roots cause roots, for example, with the grasses that have endophytes in the aerial parts and the leaves will trigger the roots to then secrete more uh, exudate and take more microbes into the roots. So you have one symbiosis in the leaves triggering another symbiosis in the root. So you have these plants, you know, these, in, in, these interacting symbioses in plants. And so plants taking advantage of, you know, defense against insects and, and stress tolerance with the fungal endophytes in the leaves and the shoots and then getting more nutrients and with the, with the bacteria and the rhizophage cycle in the roots. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is just the plant system, you know, they're doing everything. The, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it really is amazing when you think about it. interacting symbioses. What we see, what, ha what, the, what you see actually when Grasses will have the fungal endophytes in the epicloid, we call them epicloid, they're ascomycetes, in the, in the shoots, in the leaves. Uh, what happens is the plants are bigger. The plants grow bigger than when they don't. And the reason is because the one symbiosis will trigger the other symbiosis, which will then make the roots bigger and make the plant get more nutrients and allow the plant to get more nutrients and grow bigger. So it's, uh, it, but you have to, you know, if you're studying only fungal endophytes, you don't see that. You got to study the fungal endophytes and you got to study the bacterial endophytes in the roots in order to see that. You got to look at both to see what's going on. And, and scientists, we tend to look at, you know, one thing. And I know we're out of time now. Uh, you, you got me going. I'm so sorry. Oh, no, I, it's I, perfect. I really, appreciate, I really appreciate it. This is perfect. I really, I really think that what we've covered and, and, and all the, the spaces that we explored, uh, I mean, it's going to make my book better. I'm going to go in and add some of these things into it. And I think everyone's going to appreciate it. Uh, I think it was really, really good. I think I'm going to be writing you because <laughs> I'm going to well, be watching this because yeah. There's a lot. This, like you said, this is the space um, where we are developing new hypotheses, and we're the uncharted territory of it is so thrilling. I mean, it, it is really thrilling. Um, I didn't know about endo endophytes until pretty darn recently. Uh, I mean, it's just not something that that is in any of the gardening literature or 
even any, any of the, you know, the farming books that, that you read and you right. really just, right. but it's amazing though, when you just take a, a, a step into the published journals, how it's literally everywhere and You'll half the time they're so zoomed in on this one little thing that you're like, well, I don't even know what this means. And you have to step back and learn about yeah. that process, even yeah. to begin to yeah. understand that. So yeah. Yeah. a long back and forth, you know, uh, of study for me, just getting kind of my bearings so that I could develop a fluency in this space. But with work like yours and with podcasts like this, we're definitely going to be able to spread that fluency further and further. So thank yes, you so thank much. You, <laughs> thank you. All right. Well, I am just so grateful. Um, we'll, we'll edit this down and, uh, I'll put bumpers on the front introducing you and I'll put links to uh, your Regen Ag course uh, with John and, and all that stuff. Thank you, Matt. You're you so have, welcome. You have a wonderful, you have a wonderful night. I, I, and I, I should say, I've also looked at your, uh, uh, one of your YouTube videos, I think with uh, growing amaranth, the orange giant amaranth. Remember that? Oh yeah, I was a young man. I was a young man mm -hmm. when I said that. <laughs> well, we all were. <laughs> yeah, you were young then. Yes. Well, you're still young. You're still young. Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting a bit older, though. You know, when I say I've been working on these things for 40 years, you know, you can get a perspective after 40 years of working on this stuff. Yeah. Right? 40 years of working on endophytes. So you, yeah. you, you develop some ideas, at least, put it that way. Yeah. I yeah. And I, I look yeah. back at some of those videos and I'm just so like, should this be on the internet or should I be taking this down? I, I liked it. <laughs> I liked I liked it. I liked it. I saw that after I, after I, after I, I was introduced to you by something I, I think I saw on, uh, where was it? A Facebook, I think. Mm -hmm. it was one of your face on your Facebook page. And then I saw your YouTube video. So yeah. That was, uh, I like that video. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll let you let you go and have a wonderful night. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You too. You too. Night night. Have a good night. I can't even believe it. The information he covers, how amazing a person he is, uh, the wisdom, the patience. I, I'm just, I'm just so blown away. I feel like I should go enroll in Rutgers <laughs> or get hired there maybe. Um, but, but I just find this interview to be one of the most fascinating that I ever had the pleasure of doing. And if you want to learn more about this, you want to see the, the visual for this, you know, you want to read about this in depth, you can go right to James's paper that's published online. It's free. You can read it all the technical. If you want to read about it in my book, you want to see the visual I created. Uh, it looks like this. And if you would like to buy or pre-order the book, you can. It's almost out. The ebooks will be out within the week. Um, within a few weeks, we're going to have, you know, the print happening. We're going to be having the print shipped to me if, like a week or two after that. We're going to be having then a, a week or two after that, me shipping it all the way to everyone all over the world. So this is the process. We're in the middle of it. If you'd like to support my work, if you would like to 
check out my books because a lot of a lot of them are free. I mean, these are kickstarted gifts to me, so I give them back to the world. They're on thepermaculturestudent.com. You can download a bunch. And if you want to support and get into regenerative soil, now's the time to do it. Go support that book, go pre-order that book, and get your copy reserved. This is a limited print run that I'm doing. It will come out at a later point in time um, online through uh, print-on-demand like Amazon and stuff like that. But as you know, print-on-demand, after they run out of those first 50, there's a lag of one week or three weeks, and then there's another 50, and it's a little wonky. Um, but when I do these orders, they were in bulk, and so you're going to want to get your books now and get your copy reserved, and I'll be signing all the copies that get pre-ordered on my website. So an added extra bonus. <laughs> Check it out. I am Matt Powers. Grow abundantly, learn daily, and live regeneratively. And build soil, remediate soil, regenerate soil with the new book, Regenerative Soil. Out soon. Go to thepermaculturestudent.com and pre-order your copy. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day.